What is a critic? The Dictionary of the Internet describes a critic as, one, a person who expresses an unfavorable opinion of something. Synonyms, detractor, attacker, fault finder, backseat driver, gadfly. A gadfly, the internet goes on to say, is a fly that bites livestock, especially a horsefly, warblefly, or botfly. That being a common parasite, a recurrent character on many a ten most terrifying organisms listicle, whose larvae hatch themselves inside the host's flesh or gut. Colloquially, a gadfly is an annoying person. One can therefore assume that a critic is a wonderful human being. Now according to this same source, Google that is, there is a second definition of critic. And that's a person who judges the merits of literary, artistic, or musical works, especially one who does so professionally. Nevertheless implying that when one does not do so professionally, their opinions are that of the rank and file, the plebeians, the proletariat, who as we all know are lower class and therefore wrong. Of course, what is a critic really but a plebeian in disguise? A middleman, a go-between, a mediator, a broker, agent, merchant? Selling what he loves and denouncing all else, in pithy quips no less, as crass, cliché, droll, mindless, ugh, uninspiring, and at best, counterproductive. Is a critic a philosopher? Assuming with unflappable self-assurance that he alone can collate and codify civilization's dearth of art and media, and in light of all its voluminousness, verify that a recent work of art, released this Tuesday in stores near you, has captured a profound slice of the human condition and that one would be foolish not to enrich their lives with its miraculous existence. Conversely, a critic will tell you that 99% of their time is wasted by posers wearing blinders, peddling good vibes and lullabies, hopes, fears, and Britney Spears. And who's to say who's right or wrong, because after all, don't we all just want a really good song to bat around our ears so the fears of life never get too loud or too pronounced? The world needs quips and codicils and stars and thumbs because life is short and if you don't get it, well, you're just dumb. Brevity is brilliant. Brevity takes strife. But three hours, what a chore. You're such a bore. Get a life. Fair's fair. Can't argue there. But with all due respect to the statement above, it's a matter of just how much you love what you're speaking of. And if enough's enough, then pack it in. It's not a game where the goal is win. We're just glad to have spent the time. Not saying it gives us peace of mind, but from chords to lyrics, on all these things we must dwell. It's a process, a project. Welcome to our hell. Crash Chords Podcast. I am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. I'm John. I'm Steve. And here's to five years of saying that phrase. Clink. Wait, clink, 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 clink. Glasses were too clink. far. Hey, clink. Oh, clink. That, that was loud. Clink. Very peaky. Oh, uh, that, one, that one worked. That one Early one worked. podcast problems. Peaky. Yeah. Um, don't worry, we're not going to eat or drink on the podcast. Although, for all you know, we already are. We should. We could be hammered. We could be hammered. We should be, not. really, if there's a day to be hammered. Well, Can't it be our five-year anniversary? I suppose. We're if actually, we're actually late for our five-year anniversary. <laughs> I thought whiskey was ten. I don't know. Um, well, as a non-drinker now, I lose all that. Just falls out of your head once you stop drinking booze. Yeah, but you got to know your anniversaries. You're married. You're the only one. Well, yeah, but here. no, those are. Oh, you're talking. But those are booze anniversaries. The actual. It's like. <laughs> 
Isn't there's, it animals? I can't believe there's booze aversaries. But isn't there animals? Like, e- each amount of time represent is represented by a certain animal or a certain precious metal, maybe? Precious metals, yes. And uh, gemstones for some of it. I know there's a sapphire and a ruby one. Um, uh... It, I think it, I think you got to be well invested into a relationship though to hit something like ruby, or at least you should be. It's a freaking ruby. They're expensive. Are these the jubilees? No. Or is that just for the queen? Uh, jubilees? I thought that was only a, a character. Like on twenty-five? X-Men. No, twenty. Like diamond jubilee, twenty-five, seventy-five. Something. Didn't like the that. queen just have her her like sixty something? That's a. No, no right? that's, that might just be a British. We thing. don't know anything about this. No, <laughs> clearly not. So nothing has changed in five years. Oh, <laughs> um, what confidence! Um, before we get into our very special five-year anniversary episode, and also how every fifty episodes we tend to have a special episode, a special something, a special just, just for you, just for you or us, <laughs> mostly us, mostly <laughs> us, yeah, and like our five listeners, five, six, I don't know, somewhere around there, six regulars, six regulars. If you feel you've been six left out, please, please call us out. Um, well, I, I, I do want to say something about uh, just an interesting experience I had in thinking about the fact that we've been doing this for five years. I can actually remember back when we had uh, Gary and Nate of the now defunct Average Intelligence podcast mm-hmm. on way back in episode forty-eight, and they were telling us about their podcast and how it started way back in 2008. Uh, so they were like five-year veterans at the time they were on our show, and that was within our first year. So I remember thinking, wow, five years, that's insane. And also because like 2008 is sort of a formative time of the podcast medium when mm-hmm. podcasts were just starting to crop up in droves. And I could not wrap my head around being a part of that, and I couldn't visualize us at the time arriving at the five-year marker because we were just under a year old. And now here we are, five years old, and just recently I double-checked. We surpassed the amount of episodes that Average Intelligence ever released before folding, which is a little morbid, and it's not a competition, obviously. I'm just expressing my uh, perpetual awe at the passage of time. I mean, I, I don't disagree with that astonishment. Um, a podcast that... One I, can't disagree with astonishment as I far mean, as yeah, I know. Yeah. I feel like John could disagree with just about anything, really. That's my job. He sets his mind to it. He Not do. even on this podcast in general. That's my job. Um, but yeah, no, I think there was something really kind of cathartic to me to realize that I've been podcasting as long as I've been enjoying some podcasts in a similar vein. Like, I look back at some of the podcasts that I've been listening to, like... Um, the Nerdist has been around for a very long time. It was one of the earlier podcasts to really take podcasting mainstream. And I've now been making one longer than I think I've been listening to that consistently yeah. anyway we, since we, the last couple of years. We got longevity. We got that in the bank. Yeah. At least that. If, if, if taking minor breaks doesn't kill us, we're fine. Whether age comes with wisdom or not, at least got age. Yeah. And I, with that comes a lot of assumptions. Yeah, I would say so. Um, but uh, but it's just, it's been really cool to see how this has grown and become, like we say, I mean, at the core of it, it is kind of a hobby because we are not making money off of this quite yet. But I think that it, it really is a career for us. It's become a career. We're career critics. We've been doing this for a long time. We are not inexperienced. This is one of the three podcasts that I make. And so, like, it, it, it's very easy to say that it's a career. It may not be a career that pays, but it's a career. Well, that's why I threw that little uh, quip in the uh, top of the show, that thing, that mysterious disembodied thing at the top of the show, <laughs> and, unless you didn't hear it and you just jumped to this timestamp right now, uh, about, you know, being professional and how, like, the critic, there's nothing that says a critic has to be professional, and yet it was there in the dictionary. I mean, people yeah. assume, oh, they say critic. Well, if you are a critic, uh, then you're professional, but if you just critique things every now and then and you say stuff about art, well, then maybe you're not a critic. But yet, at the same time, if you've done it enough 
can't you technically call yourselves a critic? And then what does that mean? What are the implications of that to right. the general public? Does it mean anything? I don't know. Also, what does professional mean these days? There are tons of people That's online who too. are great critics who are professionals but maybe and don't get paid. That's or, right. If you know, make money with something else and you just put it into something into your passion project, which takes just as much of your time, and you funnel money into that despite that you never intend that to be its own money maker, you don't want to monetize it, then, well... It's still kind of professional, considering that you're funded, you know? There's nothing kind of about it. It's professional. I yeah. mean, if you, you're 10,000 hours, you know, if you put in enough time, and for sure we must, after five years, have done 10,000 hours of this podcast. Well, you could probably say you could put in 10,000 hours of, of anything. I mean, And I, you're going to become some level of a professional at it. Am, am I a professional urinator? Because I've probably put in 10,000 hours of that. Yeah. In my life, right? I yeah. mean, I would say so. Sure. Why not? All right. I mean, it depends on whether you're standing or sitting. Another thing I... to add to my resume. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Lord knows you need it. Oh, jeez. We all do. That's why we rely on this. <laughs> it's the, lo well, look at it this way. It's the longest job I've ever had. Being the webmaster of Crash Chords is actually the longest job I've ever had. That so, is true. there's that. It, it looks kind of weird with that, like, 2012 for you, like, 2010 to present. Like, yeah. really? What? Yeah, like, you've been doing this thing for so long. I mean, it gets attention what on it, my what LinkedIn. What is that? Tell me about it. Well, yeah. what? That'll take thing. you some time. In fact, uh, consecutively, it'll take you about, what, a month of consecutive audio listening to consume uh, what we do? Uh, 250 episodes. Multiply that by, let's say, two. Ooh, on air math. Uh, so that's 500 hours uh, divided by 20 days. That's, right. that's pretty intense. Right. Overshot it a bit. I was close. Yeah. Nice. That's pretty pretty intense. I mean, it's not, less I, although I don't recommend anyone listen to us for twenty hours straight because I think you will probably start. No, your head your head will explode. Yeah. It's, it's been it's documented. It's been proven well, to happen. Yeah, it's that's, that's how we lost our first five listeners. So yeah. watch out the yeah. current <laughs> ones. Yeah, exactly. And, let's, and we could also potentially ignore like the first like three days worth as uh, well. Also, uh, also I, I do have to say that I do wear my podcast influencers on my sleeve and so after being been doing this for five years I've I feel like I at least have come into my own as a podcaster and having a certain style that I now carry across my all three of my podcasts but you know like saying we only have five listeners I've been listening to the epic podcast since it started and Schaefer and Nelson always said they have one listener even though they've been proven to have at least three or four active listeners if not more but they still say they have one listener and it's the same kind of is gag it, is it you it's not, actually. It's Seymour um, um, Muldrow, who I am friends with on Facebook, who I am friends with because I said on air I wanted to be friends with their one listener, C. Muldrow. So shout out to C. Muldrow if you're listening. Um, which is also a running gag. But I think that, seriously, being able to find my voice as a podcaster, as uh, a, a streamer, and um, a Let's Player that I'm trying to dabble in now. You have a brand. Yeah. You have a brand. And, You're building and, a brand. But I only discovered that by doing this for as long as I've done it. And I think we can all safely say, even and when we branch out from this, when you were both writing articles, like our, we found our voice here and developed it for other things. True. And then, I, and then when I went to Classical Light, I found a voice there that I... Funneled back in here. Right. <laughs> Just to use for here. For the I discovery. used classical light for the crash. I mean, when I started doing autographs, there's stuff from that that I brought here when we were having guests. Like, you, you continue to self-discover and grow based on the projects you work on. And this has been the longest-running project I've ever worked on, ever. And yet... Which is daunting. Considering all of those things, today's focus is really not about celebrating what we do, because we already did that in yeah. one of our anniversaries. That was our second anniversary, in fact. Episode 100, A Self-Analysis. Well, this is more about self-reflection, self-loathing. <laughs> Maybe. 
I mean, that's that's adding the DC darkness filter on this that oh. all those movies seem to use. But, oh, I thought that was the the Abrams shaky cam. Uh, no, that's the Star Trek movies. That's I, different. But I thought that was the darkness, or like the reverse darkness. Lens flare is the reverse. Oh, no, we're jumping cannon. Anyway, um, <laughs> this is about criticism. This is about critical analysis, period, and how it is approached. Uh, just that. That's yeah. all this is going to be about. So this is if this is not your thing, first of all, the whole series is not for you. But yeah. if it is your thing, then this particular episode is going to be a little more hard-hitting. Seriously, if you're not into criticism, why are you listening to our show? Yeah. <laughs> not that I want to call anyone out, but I'm just saying. I've had friends come up to me and go, I love your shows. I can't always listen to Crash Chords. And I take that as a compliment. Me too. Because I find that if you have a show that can be that divisive and also want you to focus in on the things that you're looking for, that shows the breadth of the variety of that show. I had a recent discussion uh, with someone at a bachelor party just a couple weeks ago, in fact, about how he could not comprehend the fact that we are kind of a pillar content-based series where it is episodic, not in that people will follow from episode to episode, but on a title-as-needed basis. Yeah. Like, they see an album they're interested in, they see, a, uh, in there, they see a pitch that they're interested in, and they'll kind of go for that specifically. In other words, yeah, if you're not ready for a three-hour-long thing, because it can get that long every single week, we thoroughly understand that. It's more just pick from all that stuff that we have yeah. online right now. It really, the, the series only could have become advantageous after having spent five years. So all of it's there now, use it. Um, I also want to just give a recent shout-out to a recent influencer to me who I found out his show is ending. Um, if you're a fan of the Idea Channel and Mike Rognetta, oh. um, they just announced that due to mutual terms, the Idea Channel will be ending. I think it's going through August. And then he's moving on to new stuff. Idea Channel is going to stay in existence but is coming to an end. And even though I've only known Mike a short time, I've had great conversations with him and he has been someone who's inspired me to speak and think a little differently on this show and others. So I want to give a shout out to the Idea Channel and hope that people will go to that backlog and still enjoy and their it's stuff. it's people like Mike Rugnetta, who yeah we had on this show, episode 220, uh, who have, I think, been instrumental in inspiring the way we have gone about and developed this series and yeah. our critical approach and all that it means. And good luck into the future, Mike. And uh, sorry if uh, you coming here uh, canceled your show. Um, we apologize. I mean, he profusely. hasn't gone on the air and said specifically that. So it could be, but I'm going <laughs> to go with no. That's not the reason. But if it is. Probably not. Yes. Uh, but back to something you said before about how, you know, people are a little wary of criticism. And I suppose, yeah, three hours of criticism might seem like a lot to ask. And to many people may also seem unnecessary. Which is why I always like to add that little codicil, that little S risk at the end of everything that it's really also about the analysis because you have to know the work before you can even get into the criticism and this has changed over the course of the show as to how the degree to which we focus on one and then the other but at this point I'm willing to celebrate both finally yeah you need to be able to understand and get empirical information about something before you can make a judgment call or at least you should and yeah, need is is not necessarily true considering, you know, the internet, but but definitely should, I would say, is the case. And we do have gut reactions ourselves when we're analyzing music, when we're actually talking about music and making our judgments on it. Some things you can make a, a snap decision on because it it's not as deep and you don't really have to delve so super deep. But at its core, you still understand 
the science behind it, the math behind it, the information, the, the textbook of what you're trying to digest before you say it's good, it's bad. Because that's where criticism takes the step inward. It tries to explain the why of something, the why of these facts and the why nots of these facts. It, it's the self-doubting critic is essentially what it is. And this is how I, I would sort of partition the two things to anyone who kind of thinks that debating whether this is criticism or whether it's analysis is all just a moot point and we're wasting time on it. Well, criticism is essentially, I like this and here's why. And since we're not being selfish, here's what this work means for society, not just me. They always add that little component. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, let's call a spade a spade. It totally starts with you. You were moved, you felt something, and you want to share it to the world and tell them why they should like it too. That's what criticism is. Or shouldn't. Or shouldn't, exactly. But analysis, by contrast, seems so sterile because you get a lot of motion out of criticism. That's going to be very from the gut. But analysis, it's sterile, and depending upon who you talk to, it may seem more pointless than criticism itself because analysis concerns breaking down the components of something that is complete. It's already done. Like, it, it incurs this accusation of mulling over minutia. It's done. The piece is done. Just shut up and enjoy it. And look, it's true that analysis is essentially an act of reverse engineering something, which in science, presuming that you're doing something so you can steal someone else's work and manufacture their product, then yeah, that, that's pretty shitty. But at the same time, children, or just students in general, learn almost everything by breaking things down to their core components. I mean, just an example, my head was buried in How Things Work, the How Things Work book as, as a, a kid. I forget exactly who wrote those, but he, he made like several different versions of them. And I'm sure it was not all written by this singular genius who knew how everything worked, although it may very well have been. I'm not sure. And yet we encourage that kind of approach because we want our kids to grow up to be productive members of society and to further what humanity has already achieved. You can't expect a, a new generation to just stumble upon everything that took thousands of years of trial and error for humanity to learn, and you can't expect them to just add the next building block without understanding what's already been built. It's a linear process, and so we enjoy analyzing things not just for our own knowledge, but for the pedagogical merits, if that so happens to be our crowd. But even if it isn't, that kind of throws us back to criticism, because the analysis is like an open book presentation of our own thought processes on air, fueling the criticism that will inevitably follow. So we base it on the notion that can you really trust the word of a critic if they don't understand the work themselves? Or even get information incorrect. And that's actually... I'll bring up one of my uh, – okay, we did a little bit of homework and actually looked into different critics because we want to use them for examples of the good, the bad, and the in-between because we're critical and we actually draw inspiration from other individuals on how to approach these topics that we deal with, not just the music themselves but a lot of our post-discussion topics when we're talking about – vocalists or when we're talking about a genre of music or when we're talking about how technology is involved. We're still thinking about the individuals that have already come before us, maybe not talking about the same topics, and that's something we'll get into later, but how they approach being a critic. And we're going to be using them as an example. So my first one, um, recently, very recently, last week, I ran across a video about one of my favorite games going right now, Rainbow Six. Siege. It's a really twitchy first-person shooter where, yes, you're controlling a gun in a 
from the point of view of a uh, like an FBI agent or SAS or something like that, and you're you're trying to either go into a place to take it over or defend that place. It's mm-hmm. a very simple so- uh, concept, and the twitchiness as uh, a twitch shooter being. Your your reflexes are a key component of seeing that person, shooting that person before they can shoot at you. Because in this game, you get one life and you die really quick. But what's really important about that game to me is that it's an intelligent game. You have to get information. Well, I recently read a uh, watched a review uh, that presented it like, in my opinion, completely incorrect. And one of the core problems with his review, in my opinion, is that he got a couple of core facts wrong about the game. He said it was a pay-to-win game, meaning you could pay to get stuff that makes you better at the game. And that's actually not a component of the game. Or that there's no content. But his criteria of content was, for me, not what this game was presenting. Because the game itself is only about multiplayer. It's only about Team A versus Team B. There's no storyline. He said that because there was no storyline, there was no campaign, the game was not playable. And I was... I was looking at it, and I was like, well, he's, he's taking these facts as, as like the be-all, end-all. His criteria mm-hmm. for what he was reviewing wasn't, in my opinion, meshing with what the criteria was for that piece. Isn't that the straw man argument kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, a little bit of it. Uh, uh, yeah, actually, no, a lot of bit of it. it, it, it is when that he, sort of he invented something that is commonly panned. No one really, well, I'm sure some people have defended, but in general, the whole pay-to-play thing is uh, pretty, it's you know. It's killing the free-to-play market. Yeah, most yes. people yeah, are not like sitting there defending that. So at the same time, obviously invoke that to bash something. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's, but the, it's a quick, easy way to do it. But the side of it saying that it's all multiplayer and there's no single-player panning it, I mean, for me, someone who bought the new Star Wars Battlefront and was pissed that there was no replayability because I got bored because there was no story, I can see where that's coming from, but it doesn't sound like he had all of the details in line to make that argument, which is where it falls apart. Yeah, yeah. he didn't He didn't go into, well, like, it's up front. This is a multiplayer-specific game. It's right. supposed to be. Just like Battlefront. Right. Or this is a game that like you're going to Like, if you're buying this game, you're accepting these facts. Sort of like people who... Who, uh, to bring it back to music, like buy the Taylor Swift record and goes, it sounds too much like Taylor Swift. You bought a Taylor Swift record. If it sounds too much like Taylor Swift, that's your problem with the art, not the art's problem. Because the art, she intends to sound like herself. She has an image, a a, a All that means is that be mindful of who who or what you're directing it at. It directed at the person in that case. I mean, it doesn't sound like that's, you know, uh, very much nicer. But still, it would be a little more correct. But it's, it's like just the point of view of before you try to explain why something can or cannot be good, you got to know what the fundamental building blocks of that piece is. Yeah, and in this art. is this is why I suppose I've I've frequently or more frequently more recently tried to incorporate a little bit of uh, artist history. We don't do this on every single episode, and I, I this is definitely one of those things I'm setting down. It will be done on just about every single upcoming episode. Is a little bit of history of the artist we're looking at and the genre they're working in, if yeah. if that genre can indeed be defined. Because sometimes you're going to get an artist who's all over the map, in which case yeah. you can't really uh, you well, know someone the classify other, them. Someone the other day asked me what kind of music the gorillas play and i went uh you, you stall at yeah something like, like what that. do you say to that as, as a fan of the gorillas it's like well they do hip-hop and they do pop and they do indie but like to just distill it into like a few words is is almost impossible in that instant moment so yeah you i almost want to totally say do you, do you know what a virtual band is and yeah. that doesn't even describe anything about no, their music especially at all. since <laughs> they've kind of lived beyond that too a bit yeah, yeah no and, and so i think moments like that are really important though to realize how fleeting even our language of description is. And it's why we repeat ourselves sometimes. Because 
again, when that person asked me what how well, you know what the gorillas, my, it was my father. My father asked me what kind of music the gorillas play. And my father's very knowledgeable about music. He taught me everything I know for the most part about variety and all these kinds of musical genres. So to try and tell him who knows a ton of genres what they play was still a struggle because for of, me. Because very often you have to fill in the gaps when someone is missing out on the building blocks. Right. You need to fill in these steps of the ladder when you're just looking. He's they're asking for one one rung, right? Yeah. And that that well, you can't. They're not one rung. You can't have a one-rung ladder that is way up off the ground that will not function as a usable ladder. Correct. And so these are the problems that I think we've fallen into in the past and this part of the process of the show that I'm always explaining. The show evolves over time because we realize that, oh, crap, yeah, we missed a crucial component in that particular discussion, right? And there will probably always be flaws, you know, that someone can isolate, but at least we get just that first that, that first bullet mark out here on the show, and that's get your stuff right. <laughs> yeah, even something as simple as uh, violin or viola or yeah. a yeah. phrase. There's like plenty words. of, there's plenty of sub- subjectivity up. to be had in the art in, in the medium that we're involved in right now. But when it concerns the objective things, nah, just, just clear that up. Everyone clear it up. Well, and also, I think some of my favorite moments in the history of our show is when we've been called out on our shit, either because we were just way wrong or because it encouraged discussion. Like I, my friend Sharon, who called us out on kind of hating on U2, and she's always loved U2 and made a ton of valid points of why she likes that band. Or you got into a discussion with someone who brought up on Rob Thomas's most recent I was just re- about to mention that. Yeah, yeah, we talked about Rob Thomas's most recent album and things that we completely missed because we had none of the, the great, history. Uh, the great unknown, and we were sort of avoiding a huge component of that record, and that was the fact that his wife had an illness, you know? Yeah. And we were, we were missing a lot of that. Even I was looking at the lyrics and I wasn't seeing what it connected to. Well, sometimes if you have the connection there, then you can put the pieces together. Sometimes art works that way and then you can sort of enhance the art retroactively. We have our own issues against that. But, of course, it's worth bringing up we had that the episode. Ex- we had that exact problem with Queens of the Stone Age. And it changed how I felt about the album, knowing that he had been dead for X amount of time and came back, and that's what pretty much the whole album was about, changed my perspective on the record completely, where it didn't really for you. And those are about, you know, vast themes. At the same time, it can happen to really small things, like a lyric. It happened in episode 218, 50 by Rick Astley. We had this entire discussion about a line, this house will see me younger and yeah. we didn't know what that meant we were analyzing the line we we're interesting but of course that's not what the line was so yeah. and the entire discussion is moot if you don't get the line correct so uh yeah get it right yeah. get it right before you even approach critical analysis now uh, the funny thing is you know as we're going through uh critics here as we're just looking at other stuff that is done the funny thing is for all for all the episodes that we've had i for starters i was never really a big reader of critical works i suppose even just the idea originally uh to me of i guess telling me what to like always felt kind of put off it's, i think it's inherently does to many people you right. know i i can decide what i can like it's just the it's a natural reaction. Um, like, I didn't hate what critics were doing. I just knew that this wasn't really my cup of tea, a string of perceptions that are a little too centered around this one author's thought process. But at the same time, I did find that I was consuming a lot of analysis, more for its exploration of the process of music. And inherent within that, there is a lot of criticism because the, the internal flaws of the art itself often do come out at that when, when they're to be found. But I was still 
always kind of on the fence as to whether I would understand the analysis because you have to get over that hurdle first, which is why I think analysis can be kind of a turnoff. Like even as a musician, is th is this going is this subject going to start at level nine? Like, uh, and now for a seminar on uh, decomplicatio's use of vertical vertical modules in the mid twentieth century serialism era. Uh, colon a bold reaction to the Fluffenfluffen theory. I think I you just spouting terms and I don't really get any of it. Okay, tell me that's a real thing. No. I uh, tuned, I, tuned, I was half tuned out replying to a text from my wife and I actually thought Steve was making sense for half a second. Nice. So that shows how nice. how, <laughs> how 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 you say it sometimes really matters. I, I definitely feel sometimes like I need a few more college degrees to understand <laughs> some of the terms that are being thrown around. Which is actually why I added the new uh, uh, segment to the series and just musical terminology yeah. in general. Just to get people on the same page, not necessarily that and we're, some of that that stuff we're going we to use link it. our hilarity to it actually helps you remember some of that stuff. Yeah. And I guess the funny thing is, even though it can be very intimidating, at the same time, it, that stuff should never hinder people's curiosity. And it's taken me a long time to realize this, but I've often found that very often you have to go forward in order to go back. Sort of like how in math, uh, math class, I had to understand the application of something before understanding the process. And if I knew that back in high school, my grades might not have tanked way back when they did. Mm, they so, might have still. I mean, they might have still. We don't know. Sucked. That's true. That's, to begin with, it's an alternate universe. We don't know. <laughs> but at the same time, it turned out to be very much the same thing for me in music. You know, uh, and that's something that I was I was involved in. I was actively trying to understand. And certain things in theory were beyond my grasp at first. But then you start. You know, you're you're involved with it. You're listening to a lot of music. You're following along with the, a lot of the sheet music, and the the pieces of the puzzle start to gently fall into place. Following along with the, uh, what a professor once told me about how music theory isn't the kind of thing that you'll just get right there in the course. It's the kind of thing that 10 years later, you realize, oh yeah, it kind of all made sense. <laughs> That's a bizarre way to approach any subject matter because everyone wants to go about something in a linear fashion. It seems like that would make the most sense. But having these moments of reflection where you finally make those connections from way back when to something now, where you, you can go, aha, and you finally understand how this foundation has informed upon another aspect that you're just learning at this moment, 10 years later. Mm -hmm. These little tidbits and being critical in general, like approaching life from this point of view of always trying to get to the root of something, allows you to actually better fulfill yourself. I think I think that's what I've I've learned as being a critic. I can better understand what will make me happy and what will make me sad and what I will enjoy. Well, it's more that for you you can glean inspiration from the things you don't understand, and from that inspiration you will be inspired. You'll you'll fill in the gaps. It will all come naturally because you. You went ahead in order to go back. You went to the end of the line to see what your goal is, so that way you can kind of backtrack and say, all right, now I know what I have to do. Now I know what I want to do. You have the drive because you see what's ahead. So it was after that moment that I found myself like pouring over interviews, just enamored with things that I didn't quite understand, until sometime later, your instincts are essentially mirroring what you've seen. You learn by imitation, but... Don't imitate too hard, because that's plagiarism, and then you go with your gut in the end. I mean, I've said many a time on this show that 
Crash Chords existing, and more specifically, my interview style was practically lifted from the Nerdist podcast and Chris Hardwick's career in general. I mean, I've often said without any irony or jest that my my career as a podcaster is based on that site and everything I learned from it. And I have know I've grown past it because I've actually gone back and listened to recent episodes on the Nerdist and go, oh, it's interesting. He does that, but I don't do that. Yeah, like Sooner or later, your personality starts encroaching. That's, that's the same thing even with anyone who just goes to college, you're yeah. imitating your professors, you're following the doctrine at that point. And following the doctrine is never fun while you're doing it because it doesn't feel like you're contributing anything. It just feels like you're reproducing the same stuff that everyone else is doing. But that has to be there. That foundation has to be there for you, to, your personality to start naturally, you know, shining through in the aftermath. And so you, you attach yourself to these interviews or these pieces of art to grow from. And I had very much that experience with Chris Hardwick. So a good example of something that I kind of inadvertently ended up imitating uh, is uh, it, it was a documentary called An Art of Fugue. Now this is something more in the analysis vein because that's what I knew and that's what I knew I wanted this series to be back when we started. And of course I had no idea, you know, how this was going to sort of start seeping into the series when we were just doing reviews in the first few episodes. It took a long time for this kind of to become the thing. So it took a long time for even the imitation to settle in before I could then bring my own personality past the imitation. Five years, again, five, this is the five year anniversary in case that needs to be hammered home. And the documentary is called An Art of Fugue by filmmaker and uh, musician Bruno Mansanjong. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, it's French. And uh, he, well, not him specifically, although he's a great interviewer. He's done many other interviews of other uh, sort of contemporary classical artists, um, well, 20th century classical artists, because he's on the older side at the moment, still alive though. Um, unfortunately, the other big component of this particular uh, documentary is not still alive, and that is is the great Glenn Gould, pianist Glenn Gould, uh, who was sitting with him for about an hour at the piano talking about fugues. And the first time I saw this, again, back in like 2012, it felt as if this was all going to be, you know, about Glenn Gould, it, like a, a lifestyle reporting thing, as so much music journalism is. And while that wouldn't have been crazy, because Glenn Gould is a pretty brilliant and fascinating mind and brought about a lot of controversy because of his quirky approach to piano performance. He's sort of a Canadian academic-speaking heartthrob back in his youth who played Bach and dragged the same creaky piano chair that his father built for him to every stage that he ever performed in, uh, who wore uh, coat and gloves in the dead of summer, and who sang or hummed kind of distractingly while he performed, or even on recordings. You'd hear his humming in the background, and a lot of people did not like Glenn Gould for that reason. In fact, he's humming in this documentary when he's showing little excerpts of things. That's the kind of character TV loves and that modern media loves. And yet with all that fodder for TV ratings, this documentary is actually all about the fugue as an art form. It just bypasses all that. You get it through the lens of Glenn Gould and he's a wonderful storyteller, but it's a celebration and a criticism of all the different things that that have been done with the fugue, and it, it utilizes, it, it takes the advantage of, of Glenn Gould's uh, learned perspective on the subject. Now, I am not actually a student of fugues. I, I suppose it's in my future to learn a few of them, because they seem like they'd be a rewarding challenge. But the art of fugue is literally a mystery to me, still is. I know it on principle, I've learned a lot from this documentary, and I've read some, you know, literature on it, but I've never attempted one. And yet for a good hour here, my spine was tingling with how the subject was treated. As a, a sample, in one instance, he defines the fugue as a celebration of tonality, of the peculiar stresses and strains and pulls and pushes and magnetic attractions from one chord to another. 
see, I, I, I look back to this now, and I can find that I've drawn a lot of language from this. Like, just in the way I choose to describe music to other people to kind of convey my appreciation for it because it's very often uh, it's difficult and next to impossible to convey something you love and yet there is this wealth of literature and glossary terminology that helps us to explain this all the time if you just practice at it i mean a celebration of tonality what a what beautiful language especially in spite of the fact that many things you know in the last 50 years have been moving away from tonality a lot of people want to experiment with that and he goes right back to say that this is the celebration of everything tonal. But that's not to say that this entire documentary doesn't have its critical elements. It's just that it's always intertwined with the analysis component. Always thinking, always contemplating the worth of something in the face of a variety of factors, one among them your own gut feeling. So I want to just take this next excerpt, and this is a little bit of a long one here, but think of the last five years of the show, anyone who's been following this, then this 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 uh, little excerpt here might put into context how we've changed our discussions over time, how we've had to change our discussions. So it starts at the premise that Monsanjion asks, he asks Gould, what do you think accounts for the continuing fascination for the fugue? And Gould in his sort of uh, brushes his chin and thinks about this in depth, and then he, you know, goes into that little verbose language of his. Well, I, I think there are many reasons for this, really, but perhaps there is one reason that is predominant, and it's one that I think is really difficult to define, and I think it has to do with the very special need that certain types of artists exhibit, a need to prove what they do is valid, that it's not achieved by random selection, that every moment flows logically from the moment before to the moment after. It's not confined to musicians, this need, but perhaps it's because music itself is so unprovable, so improbable. Musicians seem to exhibit it more than other types of artists. It's very difficult at times in music to say why something strikes one as appropriate or as inappropriate. And then he puts this question to Amon He says, you know, you and I have often argued about middle period Beethoven, and I do not intend to reopen that argument again. And he says, oh, I'm certainly glad to hear that. And Gould says, no, 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 I wouldn't dream of it. I've given up on that as a lost cause. I really don't ever expect to persuade you of the pomposity of the Fifth Symphony or of the banality of the Violin Concerto or of the empty rhetoric of the Appassionata Sonata. No, I wouldn't be reopening that argument as I say. In fact, there is really no way to argue that, as I think we found from frustrating past experience. You can, you can feel, by the way, off off quote. You could feel Bruno kind of like writhing in his seat. He wants to engage in this at the same time. It's a documentary. He wants Gould's perspective, so he holds back. And Gould continues, I mean, I can say to you, this is a tiresome idea. And so he plays the introduction to the second theme of Beethoven's Empire Concerto here. And he plays it, kind of this percussive, you know, uh, introduction. Not much to it, just percussion on the piano. And Bruno butts in, well, I would say to you right away that in context, this is a marvelous idea. And Gould fires back, yeah, in the context. See, you would have to say that. I'm sure you would. It's just kind of putting him down there, this uh, academic speak. Um, but notwithstanding your argument, Beethoven, as you know, had a very special temperament. Because in those middle years when he wrote that junk, he had absolute confidence that what he did was valid just because he did it. And it's a very great gift. I'm not arguing against intuitional creativity or anything like that. I'm simply saying that most composers don't have that gift. They don't have that audacity. They don't have the nerve to try and get away with anything as silly as that. They can't talk themselves into it, much less expect that the listener is going to accept it, uh, what they do on, on a leap of faith. 
Most composers are just far more fragile than was Beethoven. Why do you think we had uh, Strauss who wrote all those incredible tone poems of his in which every thematic idea, every modulation had to be accounted for? I think he did it. I think he erected all those programmatic scaffolds to convince himself, really, that everything he did had an architectural reason and that there was nothing that was improvisatory in terms of structure, that everything belonged. Well, I think in a funny way, contrapuntal forms, fugues and canons, are just like that. Either canon fulfills the various shalls and thou shalt nots of the canon form, or it does not do that. And in the same way, the fugue is a process which is about process. It concentrates on process, and one is not likely in a fugue to be seduced by the momentary attraction or distraction of a particular idea. Now, I know that's a mouthful. All for just a single quote from this, uh, from this documentary, and you can find it online, The Art of Fugue. But there's a lot that's packed in here, both in terms of what Gould wants to say about both about things having to be seen in context and also about there having to be a certain set of rules that something either follows it or something does not. And you can at least acknowledge that while at the same time saying, well, criticism is still not taken off the table. We can have discussions about that, and while we can fiercely disagree, we can at least say it serves the form. We don't have to dismiss it wildly with the wave of a hand, for instance, as a, a, a failure of a, a poor writing, you know? And these are the kind of discussions that I think we've had ad nauseum on this show, which is why we can sometimes sound like we're talking out of both sides of our mouths. Beautifully written, beautifully written. But next to the previous section, was that a good choice? Well, and I think what's really striking for this about, for me, watching the actual interview is that he's speaking, Gould is speaking in a way that shows even the slightest kind of jest, even when he's saying, well, we're not going to open that argument again, yeah. or calls th something trash, junk, as it were. <laughs> We've done that exact stuff on the show. We've engaged in each other tried not to argue, pushed away from those arguments, but have still kind of tug-in-cheek poked fun at the others and their opinions, because at the end of the day, we recognize we're here for the analysis, not necessarily always the criticism. Though, in the earlier times, uh, the words, you're wrong, probably rang out on this podcast a few too many times, yeah, and probably. I think one might have been one too many times. Uh, so, like, that was one of the things that I think we definitely needed to get rid of, and that's sure. one of the things that is a turnoff for me when it comes to critics, to actually trying to find somebody um, that meshes with my taste or that is able to bring me into another work. And that's what I go to critics for. They either are going to be an individual that I know they like the same sort of things that I do, whether it's the arts, whether it's movies or television or music or paintings or whatever, whatever aspect of the arts that we're talking about. If if I know that they like the things I like, but their job is to present said things to me, they're going to be able to feed me the sort of things I wouldn't necessarily have discovered on my own. And that's one of my favorite parts of, of, of looking at critics and looking at critical websites like even Metacritic. Even Metacritic. Yeah. Because Metacritic is an, an oddball place, but if you know how to navigate it, you can find that same sort of like vein. Well, okay, yeah, you're on Metacritic and you're looking for the best, but maybe you're going to just find the Rolling Stone articles on Hard Rock because they do all the aggregate information and put it right there in short little blip form. So if you can discover one or two more focused websites on Metacritic, you can actually discover a whole swath of music that you may not have known before because not... 
every album gets reviewed on Rolling Stones, and not every album gets reviewed on Pitchfork, but on Metacritic, most, not all, but most albums show up. What's interesting to me, though, is that you said that you tend to look for reviewers that you agree with, which is interesting. Uh, critics and reviewers, um, they're not necessarily always the same thing. Whereas I find that sometimes an animosity for a critic or even just not agreeing is more intriguing to me. Like, I recommended to you guys an article by Will Hermes from Rolling Stone. I do read Rolling Stone as often as I can just because... We don't always take on the pinnacle albums, and so I want to see what other people are saying about them. I'm always curious. But he did a review of Gr Humans by Gorillaz, and I wanted to read it because it was at, I just I shelved it and read it after our review, so it didn't influence my review. But I could see if I agreed or not, and for the most part, I agree. You can tell he's a fan from the way he's writing about it. You can tell, like us, he's a fan. And while I don't agree with how he feels like it unravels and that it's not as strong as their previous works, I do agree in some of his terminology on specific songs. But I think also what I like about his writing style is even though I don't always agree with him, I enjoy the detail in his work. I enjoy how he writes. And I think that's key sometimes when picking a reviewer because you don't, I, I don't want to go to someone who I know is going to like what I like. I sometimes want there to be a disconnect because maybe he'll convince me to like something I don't like. That's very similar, in fact, to what I brought up about Glenn Gould. You know, a lot of it was really his language that I was being drawn to because, as I said, I'm not really a student of fugues. It's not really my thing. And he said some things about, you know, uh, about romantic era music, which is really my favorite era as you get further along into it, closer to the 20th century. And while he's dabbled in it from time to time, it's really not his cup of tea. He believes that really a lot of that that the best work, he's his his he is most verbose and most uh, eloquent about um, Baroque-era stuff. And yeah. so I can find myself, yeah, I disagree at times, but the language, it melts your face. Yeah. And, and <laughs> no, really, that's, that's what it comes down to a lot, is you're just trying to, I guess, approach a certain work from different angles. There'll be times when, you know, I'm kind of struggling to come up with a particular phrase for something in a, in a song that we're reviewing, and I, 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 whether it's positive or negative, I'm, I'm, racking my brain coming up with the exact turn of phrase just because it, that's going to make or break the entire argument mm -hmm. everything we do is built off of language um if you don't have language then you don't have this entire medium of let's talk about music then music is a kind of disembodied thing which is, is absolutely fine to many people who don't find this kind of discussion interesting but at the same time i think they're missing out on a lot of the on a lot of the peculiarities the things that can go right over your head if you're if you don't have the information behind the musical work itself. Well, and going back to what John was saying too about Metacritic and stuff also, is there's structure that's re very reliant on this too. I mean, for example, this article that I shared with you guys, in the very beginning, there's a quick blurb and a star rating. And if you yeah. go past that, you get the actual analysis. And there are, sh there are places that do that too. Some withhold that to the end. Like, I like a movie critic named Movie Bob who does reviews on geek.com. He tends to do a lot of the nerdier stuff, but he does try and cover everything because he, at his core, is a film critic. But he holds his writing till the end, and like we do. Film critics, but see, a lot of film critics do put their... I, I find them to be the chief uh, contenders in terms of putting it right in the front. Only yeah. because they, above all, people really want to save people money on films these days for some reason. Right. Because films can get more more expensive, especially if you live near the city and you're doing you know one of the big things near like Union Square, Times Square. Oh, those theaters are but insanely expensive. But it was expensive. always interesting to me that he specifically does what we do and withholds it to the end because it's about his analysis of right. the film He cares first. more about the art than he does the money. The money is yeah. like... 
like, hey, you want to see the, f-? you know, just take a shot on it. Take yeah. a shot on it. But let's at the end of the day, let's just have a discussion about the art of it. You know, yeah. forgetting about the money that the producer may or may not be basking in. And one final point I want to make about why we need critics in our lives is I, I, right after we reviewed um, Everything Will Be All Right in the End by Weezer, which everybody knows I, I love Weezer and will continue to love Weezer, even when they make bad records. Which and they've made quite a few. They made a few bad records. Um, was I ran across a pitchfork by uh, Ian Cohen. And Bear with us. We know there's prejudice for pitchfork, but stick with it. It's it's a 6.5 right up front. So we're already looking at something that by... Out of 10? Out of 10. Okay. By our scale is 3.25. Which we didn't agree with. Which I, I didn't agree with it. And there was one line that I, I actually felt, like, mad when I was reading this. Rivers Cuomo is making the exact kind of music he wants to make. I agree. Yeah. But the follow-up... Most artists do. The follow-up... It just so happens that it sounds like music for the masses and has no currency whatsoever. Right there, I wanted to get pissed. <laughs> I really did want to get upset at this. Because that seems dismissive. It's the very fact that the next word in this article is the word yet. Because that means that you're taking both sides of the argument. Yeah. Being the- able to do, all right, no, this is, this is trite for the masses. Yet. There's something else. Yet, in his finest mock operatic metal voice, Cuomo brings, I've had it up to here, to a head with, If you think I need approval from the faceless throng, well, that's where you are wrong. The important word here is faceless. And he goes into that full explanation. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, this guy, okay, I don't he agree sat with, with it. He sat with the work, though. Well, that's I don't the agree I, with his that's opinion, the idea but of... he, makes, he makes a good point. He makes valid points. I don't think that... Those points outweigh the points I feel like making, but uh, he's challenging me in my opinions, and that's another thing. And yes, I will go to critics more often than not that I agree with because I think they're going to bring me something that I also will find agreeable. But a critic will will cause you to question your notions, your 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 already your belief system, and challenging a belief system, regardless of what said system might be, religious, political, that's one thing, but just what you like and dislike, challenging that at its core can be very tumultuous for an individual, mm-hmm. because it's like, oh, no, 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 that, that thing you always liked, it actually is, in the opinion of the masses, trite. It's, it's terrible. It shouldn't be revered. Well, that sort of challenge people do need because while a lot of times it can make you angry about it, it also allows you to reflect on who you are, why you like this. Well, why do I like Weezer? I like Weezer because I grew up with it. I know that for a fact, but I also will say things like, I like his voice. I like the musical styles that they tend to choose. I just like the musical tempos that they put in certain songs and the lyrical work in this. And I can I can rattle off all those reasons why, but I also have to go, okay, well, I'll be honest. Like, they're very simple when it comes down to the music. Yeah. That's, that's a plus in so many cases, but on so many other cases, on this podcast, I've said, that's a minus. Well, very often, in order to be comprehensive, critics have to bait you a little bit. They have mm-hmm. to bait you with something that is expected to rile you. You know, you're, yeah. you're going you're gonna to be on the edge of your seat being like, what are you about to say about that artist that I love and, you know, all that stuff. But you also stumbled upon something else that uh, I want to move on to in the course of this episode, and that is a little something called the Law of the Infinite Cornucopia. The law of 
basically an infinite cornucopia put forth by Polish philosopher Leszek Kolakowski, which suggests that for any given doctrine one wants to believe, there is never a shortage of arguments by which one can support it. In other words, you can build just about any scaffold you want yeah. uh, based on something that you hold to be true. It's very possible with language and rhetoric to use it for ill. And to invent something just because you believe it, you can make other people, but this is how cults, you know, get started. <laughs> That's obviously the most extreme example, but it happens uh, really in, in, a, in a great many ways. In fact, I, I, I uh, learned about this particular thing, Law of Infinite Cornucopia, from an, an article called Western Philosophy Caused Alternate Facts by Riley Haas <laughs> on uh, Medium.com and the publication Thoughts and Ideas. Um, Every belief system will use any and all evidence, including evidence that contradicts that belief system, to justify its existence and perpetuate itself. Think of it like social Darwinism of the mind. And in psychology, it's called reducing cognitive dissonance. Human beings need to create narrative rationalizations to explain things which contradict their beliefs, rather than change their beliefs when confronted with the contradictory evidence. So this particular thing right here, I, I think, is what gets applied gets used by critics um, more than any other thing they have they are setting out to convince you of something but they've got all these bait and switch methods that they're yeah. going to do in order to I guess just make it an entertaining read because a lot of it does revolve around hey we're I'm I'm working for someone I'm I'm they're paying me to put out an article that is going to get read which means it probably has to be a little bit more in depth than simply hey buy this album don't buy it that that's gonna be such a cursory click yeah. you know they want readers Shares. They want people to to say to fall in love with their language, be it for whatever reason, yeah. for the bait and switch or for that law of infinite cornucopia that they fall into the trap uh, with. It's it's it seems a lot more malicious, and yet you know we I'm sure we've done it all the time. the The biggest thing we try to do though is just <laughs> being that we have three hours, incorporate a little bit of everything. Yeah. If we have a point, well, we're going to argue that as hard as we can for that particular segment of the show until we leave. Ample room for someone to just tear it down. Usually, maybe the same person. <laughs> actually, that leads me to a, uh, a specific thing I've actually seen pop up a lot called the no true Scotsman fallacy, which I see as an argument point for a lot of uh, critiques. The, the idea is, and this is presented by philosopher Bradley Dowden, I was looking it up the other day. That's why I actually had this on my quick. Uh, person A said, states, no Scotsman puts sugar in his porridge. And then person B goes, but my Uncle Angus likes sugar with his porridge. So person A comes back, ah, yes, but no true Scotsman puts sugar in his porridge. Ergo, you're, he's not a true Scotsman. Er, ipso facto. Ipso right. facto. There you go. That's an argument I actually see pop up a lot. And the straw man fallacy and things like that, like, oh, you... you don't know true musician would use this or do that right. I mean, well, no, your more, more commonly are... no true uh, subscriber to the genre you know would actually make that particular choice would incorporate a violin in his music but that's where you actually tend to find the most interesting of things is when people aren't true metal like, yeah. or true rock because they're actually defying the preconceived idea of well, they're not supposed to put sugar. Does that in their mean porridge. that subconsciously, when I say uh, such and such is defined as the quintessential, you know, I, does that mean that I'm secretly 
You're secretly doing knocking it, it really? Yeah, just a little bit. Maybe just a, a little, little bit. bit. Maybe I have to re. Mm, I gotta look back now. But uh, to to go back and draw that to what Steve was talking about, also in this idea of um, you know true criticism and the infinite cornucopia and all of this stuff, and even how these articles have to be entertaining at least to a degree to get those clicks or followers or whatever. One of my favorite early game reviewers, I say early, but it's probably not the earliest. There were written articles before this. One of the early YouTube game credits, who we've talked about on the show, I'm sure I brought up before, Yahtzee of Zero Punctuation. He infuses comedy into his reviews. And his reviews often, and I think he would even say, are kind of trite and very superficial. But his idea is to create these like bullet mark punch statements that give you a giggle and also intrigue you in the game itself for better or worse and sometimes I go to that I rarely agree with his actual analysis of the games however I am always entertained by it and sometimes the more he hates it the more I want to play it well and he's acknowledged that gap and has commented on it Mm -hmm. so he's aware and I think that makes it infinitely more entertaining and almost leading to parody well, I, I also follow Yahtzee. In fact, you got me into it but way back when. Yeah. Um, I, I normally disagree with his opinions. But then again, I know he comes from a... He doesn't like sandbox games. Yeah. Like, that's one of his big he things. He has prejudice. And he's open about his prejudices. Like, I know where so, he's coming from. A sandbox game being a game where you can just like, travel the world, yeah. quote-unquote. And I, I, I kind of like those types of games. I like being able to just go from point A to point Z <laughs> and skip all the rest of the alphabet in between. Uh, that's something you get to do. Now, there's certain other elements that I agree with, like QuickTime events. I know he really doesn't <laughs> like QuickTime events. Press X at this moment in time. I don't like it either. But he he gets me interested that I've checked out every single game that he's ever reviewed, like just to at least look at it on YouTube and clips and things like that, because he blows so many things out of proportion, but he adds a little bit of satire on top of it. Another thing that he does, Yahtzee in particular, is... Judge it by the cover. There's another series, yeah. Which is, it's funny, but it's funny in a in a in a very specific kind it's of a, way. It's very bitter and kind of dark. Yeah, in the way he's he, very bitter about this sort of stuff. But don't judge a book by its cover. Essentially, he is taking game books. I think even movie book uh, he, covers. He takes posters. He takes and anything. he literally judges it by the cover. He comments with no knowledge sometimes of the source material based on this one image and makes preconceptions, which is actually very brilliant in its way because he's doing exactly what that adage says and you're not supposed to do and making it funny. One of my favorites is when he was doing Guardians of the Galaxy, I believe he circled Groot and goes, like, what is... And he's, he's, he's British by way of Australia or he moved to Australia. Like what? What? What is this plant thing doing over here? Like that's that's Groot. Like you want to yell at this yeah. guy? Like if he was serious, you want to yell at? What are you talking? That's Groot. That's Guardians. But Groot. to a degree, it's satire. It's like well, someone who's just completely ignorant. Yeah, that's all he can really do on something like that. But I love the way he plays up this ignorance. Yeah, it's definitely heightened, and I think it's interesting to talk about the parody of criticism because. I personally didn't actually know that there was that much. I mean, judging by the cover is one, but for the most part, I tend to see critics as pretty sincere. Other than, of course, one of my favorite two-season shows that never got the, I think, righteous resurgence it deserved, but The Critic, which was a TV series starring John Lovitz as a critic. critic. And so, like, 
Uh, Movie Bob actually did a video recently about he does in Bob We Trust where he just talks about things in the in the ether of nerddom and how that show is more relevant now than it ever was because of how it approaches criticism. Well, that's just the thing. Like, most of these critiques of criticism is meta as that sounds, and yet that's the whole premise behind literary criticism in general is that we're always constantly double-checking things. We're double-checking, you know, what is released, and then we're double-checking the things that we're double-checking. And yeah. they tend to... Sp- to crop up mostly in the times when we feel like they are most needed, when we feel that there is a flaw in the industry or something like that. So, you know, with film criticism, well, that's been sort of an issue for a long time, but yeah, it is really an issue recently, and now that you mentioned that about the critic, I I, I totally agree. That show needs to be in broadcast syndication, <laughs> damn it all, of its very few episodes. But there's something else that came out recently, um, well, within the last year, that I... I think has kind of changed the game for me, even though it's not about music. It's a kind of thing that is basically noticing what I see to be a flaw in the YouTube medium, in the uh, internet slash podcast YouTube medium, where basically bloggers who gave much of the same spiel that we gave earlier about how, you know, you don't have to be professional necessarily. You just have to be... Uh, have some sense of delivery, you know, that at least is engaging enough to hold or develop your audience to some extent. Um, And then after that, well, then there are no rules because no one goes to school for criticism in general. You might have taken a class and that's an interesting little side, you know, portion of the actual thing itself. But in general, it's something that people just kind of find their way to Um, and very often sort of shove it aside as a thing that I, uh, that's just something I do. That's it. But in general, they're fans. They're fans of a certain thing and they like talking about it. In fact, it's led to a little bit of saturation. It, I would say oversaturation. But, you know, that's, uh, that's a problem. Most people would say, in general, well, well, the, that's the wonder of the internet is you get to share your opinion to the world and everyone gets to have a soapbox. But at the same time, that's a lot of very unqualified people taking that soapbox. And I say this with a lot of humility because I'm always kind of questioning what I say on air, which is why I haven't, uh, at times, you know, incorporated a little apologies here and there when I think that I may have said something that was... Uh, it just it didn't sit well with me in the week after I said it. Like, that was my opinion then, but now I have to find myself recanting it. And in this era of, you know, pillar content, well, that's tough to recant because people don't assume that you have this fluid arc over the course of these individual releases, and most people don't have that wherewithal. So I'm trying to have this wherewithal, and a lot of people don't. And, well, it was finally lampooned, and it was lampooned by my favorite crowd. I've mentioned this before, maybe here and there. I'm sure many people would be familiar with it. Red Letter Media. That crew, the people who started the Plinkett guy, mainly Mike Stoklasa, who was who played Plinkett and did the reviews of the Star Wars prequels. Yeah, um, and. In general, he didn't have a very good take on them. No. He, uh, he like, was not kind to them. Like many others, he was brutal. Brutal to say the least. And he has his own little, you know, satirical flow. And he incorporated his little stories, just little side gags. He had an interesting comedic approach. But that does not uh, chill it from the fact that it was a, a biting review. Mm-hmm. And they were... Like, kind of like this, pretty long. They were longer, I think, than the movies themselves, or at least they, they were movie length. They were yeah. feature length reviews on a feature length film, and there were three of them. And so he did them kind of rare in the beginning because they would take a lot of work, a lot of editing, a lot of scripting. And I, I was blown away by them because of, I think, the attention to detail mm-hmm. in something that you don't like. And that's kind of what the show 
at least had become this show here when we were doing, when we were focused on a week where, all right, it's somebody's, uh, somebody picked an album that they were taking a chance on, and then after taking that chance, we found that, ah, actually, we all kind of don't like it, and then we sit here kind of panning the album for about three hours at a time. But music is all different from film, because music, well, you might find uh, a case, whereas in, you know, uh, Atlas by FM84 in episode 237, where it's just one guy working on something, and it doesn't affect very many people other than him and the people who follow his art. But then in film, it incorporates so much money, so much time, so much effort, and sort of corrals this public consciousness that it can feel, make you feel like it got a little bit stiff, that all of this was just all for naught, and all these people were doing it more as a job and weren't paying attention to the core idea behind the thing, and that's why I loved those, uh, those reviews. Well, they did a new series, and they've been doing new stuff for a while. They have their Half in the Bag series, where they're just kind of, you know, off-the-cuff uh, roundtable discussions, and now he did a new thing called The Nerd Crew. Well, The Nerd Crew is about, you know, three nerds, guy who just likes movies and you know uh you could call him a film geek a a uh, a movie nerd uh a guy who just really likes movies and this kind of talk is how a lot of people introduce themselves because they always want to incorporate both of each they want to incorporate the humility while at the same time really hammering home the fact that they care very much about what they're about to say on the internet mm-hmm. and a lot of this i think there's a lot of room for criticism i think there's a lot of room to say hey look any YouTube video that you see and any podcast that you listen to, even if it be the Crash Quartz podcast, you should take with a grain of salt because expect to get a lot of cliches and stuff that is borrowed in this industry that isn't really even an industry. Turns of phrase, buzzwords, things that really keep you in this safe housing where your professionalism really takes a dive, where it suffers regardless of the fact that you may be making lots of money and it indeed is possible to do that via YouTube. But if the quality is suffering because you're sort of caught in a web of your own art, and I guess it can be an art, then that can be kind of detrimental, I think, after a while, after people are just absorbed in that and they're losing perspective. They're losing perspective even within the very medium that they're that they're putting out forth to people right and what's interesting and engaging about good satire is that you take those uh fallacies or logistics and take them to the extreme right this idea that in this series that steve inundated us with it, for the first five minutes you could conceive of it as being sincere yeah it, it's very easy to especially if you have no prior experience and i haven't watched the red letter media stuff in a while but then very quickly you see Oh, this is a send-up. I see what they're doing here. But they're still taking these characters very seriously because they want them to be believable because they are based in uh, some semblance of reality. They want them to be believable with copious amounts of sarcasm. Right. But what's really interesting for me is watching the series go along. And there are a ton of of great send-ups and strange things and interesting stuff that they do. But my favorite was... The insanity of the set change. YouTube series go through changes. We talked about it with Mike Rognetta and Idea Channel, and like they, naturally they do. But the idea that to make them more credible, they added more action figures, wore more hats, shirts, mugs. Like the set just got more merch, more, more merch, more just just got more and more ridiculous. Till the final episode, they're wearing hats upside down and backwards and inside out, and they're holding mugs and wearing multiple T-shirts, and it just 
is showing almost the ridiculous scale of how some of this stuff is literally just about what you wear and have and own. <laughs> Which is, I think, the bane of a lot of, you know, nerd culture as well. Is a lot of it becomes only, really more about just the the merchandise than anything else. They, they feel that that validates I think them in some way. think pop culture in general is yeah. fueled by merchandising at this it's point. It's basically the thing from their set. You know, yeah. their, their whole set, and the, the opening line, I believe it was from episode three, was, uh, well, this is Red Letter Media, currently in chapter 11, Bankruptcy implying that they had to go to Sony, right, in order yeah. to get a brand new set, and that, of course, means that everything they have to do is celebratory yeah. of whatever media, and that is the definition of selling out. Yeah. You know, the, it, it, essentially tearing down this persona as the most shallow individuals possible. Actually, one of the the bits that they did, and just, just to preface this, it, it's a little bit cringeworthy. Like yeah. it, it's, it can it's make so, you uncomfortable. It's <laughs> so cringeworthy because of how far they go with it. Uh-huh. It's such a great caricature of the the even if it's just the notion of of what uh, these individuals are. But they go so far and do it so mm-hmm. well that I'm just going, okay, guys, just just stop, just stop at a moment. But the the bit where they start talking about the new Star Wars, I think it's the third episode. And he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about Star Wars 8 and 9 and 10, 11, 12, 13, 13 14, 14, 14, 14. And Mr. Glossa, he, he's just, just bobbing his head up and down, uh, like mindlessly nodding. accepting that, yes, I look forward to this All monotony, this strain of, of things that I once used to love. And oh, one of the lines is, has a series that has been creatively bankrupt since 1983. <laughs> yeah, which is like, they were, they were actually linked in that discussion. I'm excited for episode 25 for this morally bankrupt series. Yeah. Like the combination of the two is is completely at odds. I like I like that a little bit. But the 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 going to twenty five is like Marvel's like Cinematic outline universe, yeah. of what the universe is going to be. Now DC's outline of what the universe is yeah. going to be. And also the fact that you just can't let brands die. You have an IP. And it's always cheaper to keep going with an IP than to develop a new one or to acquire a new right. one or try to develop something new because you don't have a built-in fan base. And also you got to pay the it, creative it, artists and things like that. It's why so many gaming it. series have burned out because they have to release another one this year and every year or you and might forget. Are you kidding? Yeah. People were applauding Ubisoft when they didn't release an Assassin's Creed for one year. Like, yeah. They didn't do it. And everyone was like, yes, then we're going to get a good one next time. Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no child. Not there's there's a kind that. of like blind acceptance that if it is released, you know, it, especially with the hype behind it and the mm-hmm. kinds of trailers that they release, you know, that's lampooned also with the new Justice League trailer and how yeah. it's just this mindlessly dark, you know, without any sense of rhyme or reason mm-hmm. trailer because dark dark validates me as an adult, you yeah. know, liking a series that was intended because for children. Because it's impossible to love things that are bright and colorful impossible, and Impossible, of yeah. course. Well, that actually a word you used, and that's hype. And that's one thing that I found to be a problem with a lot of critics, either before a product comes out or after a product comes out, mm-hmm. is that they... As much as we were just talking about how sometimes you got to use certain phrases, they use those phrases to get the ball rolling. And then there's hype. And hype, especially pre-hype for an item coming out, selling you on something before they even know what it is or before they yeah. even get to experience what it is, like sequels and video games, movies, or the the, the uh, second album after a freshman release that really hits you really hard. Like, yeah. oh, I'm so hyped for this. So we've used that word. I'm hyped to listen to what the next thing is. 
But then them trying to sell you on it, that's that's a big issue that I've run that's, across. That's because, uh, and I previewed this earlier, that, that netherworld where criticism crosses over into music journalism. And music yeah. journalism in general is, you know, there, there's a, a, a perfectly reasonable arrangement, you know, that, well, the PR person ships out the pitch and then the music journalist kind of shuttles that out to the masses to say, let's get the word out. They lampoon that and this as well. He's yeah. on the phone for a good uh, amount of time with the PR guy saying, you know, we, we we got to get the word out because there's a new superhero film and, you know, that it's really important. And he's getting mad that the editor, his wife, is having a baby of all things, you yeah. know? What a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's... it's it's so absurd, you know, the yeah. the level of importance that they tack on. And, of course, look, if this is your job, you know, I, I, I did this for a little while with my aggregate articles for uh, that, that previous website that I worked for. Nevertheless, that, that didn't feel like the most rewarding component of the job. There were right. other parts of the job that were very rewarding, and that was the critical component. It's just that when you're involved in music journalism, they expect you to do a little bit of everything. And I think that can kind of warp your perceptions. It all just becomes this kind of assembly line of, you know— so-and-so emails me, I send it off to them, and then yeah. it's just, I think the, the, the love gets lost, if that, if that means anything. Right. I mean, I've experienced with music journalism as well, as I wrote for a site that I don't really write for anymore either. <laughs> but I think what I took from that and, and applied to autographs is I liked talking about artists that even weren't maybe putting out the best work I've ever heard ever, yep. but I was still excited about it and want to talk about it, so it ended up being you know, less critical, less analytical, and more fluff because I was trying to sell other people on this thing without rating it because I was still excited about it. Yeah. And, but I decided that it made more sense to shift that to, and that's not to say that the guests I've had who make music aren't worth celebrating, but what I'm saying is I don't want to come at that critically anymore. I'd much rather have a discussion about the art and what inspired them than what I think about it because that's more important yeah. at the end of the day when you're getting to a personal connection with something like that. Yeah. But I would never try and spin that into this person makes the best music ever it's not about that it's just unfortunate that the second you make that decision well be prepared to kind of kiss the career of it goodbye <laughs> i mean you can it's not to say you can't build something out of that that medium it's just that it becomes a very very different thing right it becomes it's, it, it's no longer thing. part of that chain it's, it's just you have to relegate that stuff to the people who like doing that who are yeah. more involved with marketing and get a kick a thrill out of marketing but for the people that are kind of caught in that middle ground where they want to talk about something intelligently and they find themselves in these traps and that becomes their monetization process well then you have essentially the, what you have this situation. You have the nerd crew, you yeah. know, with their with their goofy little intro that will appeal to everybody and all the decisions that revolve around your product, uh, your tertiary product about other products yeah. become this, this kind of conglomerate of nonsense. Nonsense and, and probably disingenuous behavior. It's why YouTubers and podcasters are very firm when they start having sponsors to talk about if they're reviewing a product by someone who sponsors them and have sponsored that episode yep. that their opinions are still their own. And I've watched reviewers that I really enjoy tank a product that was sponsored because they have an understanding with the person providing it that they're giving their honest take on this product. They're not just promoting a product, Actually, which is an important distinction to make. Most YouTubers these days, especially those that are interacting with an art form like 
pr primarily the gamers, but uh, it, it actually hits a lot of different YouTubers. When they have a sponsored product, or like say, uh, it's common to get a Let's Play sponsored by EA or Ubisoft or something yeah. like that, especially for the larger channels. They go right up front and they say, this is sponsored by Ubisoft, thank you for doing so. And then they don't give opinions. That's actually yeah. even more common. They don't say whether they like it or not. They just play a game. Or right. they just talk about this bit. They or don't give an opinion. They just they, give the analysis. They're, they give in the information about the product so you can make your own decision. Or they speak in generalizations. Yes. They right. speak in like, generalizations that you know just speak to the, the changes that have occurred between the last installment and, and this, this installment. One, right. And they don't speak to whether that was bad or good. It's just, you know, I think it's important that they made those changes. And see, this kind of talk doesn't really mean anything. Right. When you say it's important, important to whom that right. they made those changes? It's important that when they're using that kind of language if they essentially going back to gaming really briefly if you speak of the mechanics of the game and you discuss how the mechanics work that's important you're you're diving into the details of the game for those who might be interested yeah. in it and they can make and then, their own decision and then, you know take a step beyond that say why is that good why is that bad why does that hurt the gameplay right. why does it help the gameplay just to say these are some changes and it's different and you know that's like I'm, I'm sure that's appealing to somebody who just wants the knowledge but i'm sure they could just easy, just as easily find them that out for themselves yeah. if they're a fan of the game they're sure as hell gonna buy it probably yeah actually that leads me to one of my favorite contributors on Forbes or at times least favorite contributor uh, Paul Tassi um a little bit of background. Uh, there's this game I love. It's called Destiny. You might have heard of it. You might not have. Uh, it's a pretty big game. It's floating around. Um, I was I was a huge Bungie fanboy. I mean, we they did made Halo. the Halo games. We yeah. did review one of those soundtracks. Um, wow, we did. But uh, back Paul, in the day, before we engaged the art and we just criticized the media. Yeah. yeah. Paul or Mr. Tassi, I'm going to call him Paul. Uh, I I found him very early on when I was getting hyped up for the game because I was getting hyped up. I was hyping myself, and I was okay with that. Um, when the game first released, he was extremely critical of it. And I immediately disliked him because <laughs> he was extremely critical of it. it. Like, it was a great game to me. I, right. I loved it. I loved the gameplay. And he did compliment that. He complimented the sound, the gameplay, the actual artistic style and everything like that. Mm -hmm. But he had a lot of complaints, and he really focused on those complaints. And I didn't really see the forest for the trees. He was not just talking about what was wrong with the game. He was giving explanation as to why it was wrong and how to fix it. And I've seen that with other contributors on other websites. How do you fix music? How do you fix art? Like, where did yeah. you go wrong and how can you change that in the next iteration? Which was so awesome because I don't want to say he did it, but his critiques became critiques of a lot of individuals. Whether he was the first or not, I don't know. But these fixes actually occurred over the subsequent two and a half years of the game's life so far. Mm -hmm. Three years almost of the game's life. Like he complained, there was no endgame content. Now there is. There's a lot of endgame content. Mm -hmm. Or this system of doing this with the guns and armor did not work. And now they changed it. So uh, in, in some ways, him and people like him can actually steer what the masses may see as flaws. Or what actually really are empirically flaws, objectively flaws in a system into directions of, of positivity, into the corrected course so that you don't have problems where 
yeah, maybe the mixing is subpar on an album. So the next time you get a, a piece by that artist or from that label or a re-release of this album, it actually does sound better. It actually will be a, a, a better experience overall. And one could say with this Destiny experience, you could be characterized as one of those fanboys. I was definitely, I'm still a fanboy. But so, you, but you understand that you came at it very much as, well, I like it because I like it. And Forget that. I got Gallahorn the first weekend. Like, I was, and, I was and, sold. And so, you were the people in this piece, in this YouTube series that Steve is talking about, and you couldn't even see the forest for the trees. Uh, yes. I was, I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And it, it took... It, you were, you were it, nodding. It took him a month. It took me half Longer. a year. Yeah. To really realize, no, 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 there's some big flaws. But, yeah. like, I, I eventually was educated on sure. something that I was just, like, totally engrossed in. And that's happened, like, previously when I was talking about that Weezer. Yeah, I, I recognize now where I was definitely wrong when yeah. thinking about that genre, that album a that, little bit. That can happen with anything. I mean, Forest for the Trees is definitely a good way to put it because that, I think, is really what it comes down to. You can have any type of law of cornucopia, you know, within your own within your own universe, within your own housing. When you accept that a certain franchise is flawless, right, yeah. then all of a sudden, well, it's all going to be celebratory within that. Every every installment, it's different. It's just, it's, it's different from the previous, you know? And and I just, I appreciate things that are that are different. I, and I appreciate that they, that they uh, put a, a ship that I recognize from the original series, you know? I, I, I appreciate that I saw the Millennium Falcon and the other, uh, Mike Staclasa, he, he butts in. Yeah, I mean, how could they not put the Millennium Falcon in a Star Wars film? People would fucking riot. <laughs> it's also so ridiculous. Yeah. And of course, you find this in in, in music as well. I, I was looking at a, a, an, a review of con- on consequence of sound. This is by Corbin Reef of uh, well, fifty seventh and ninth by Sting that we did the first episode of this year, episode two twenty six. And there is some lines in this. Of course, that's the episode in which we constantly wrestling with the fact that. All right, he was looking a little bit more in uh, outward. He was looking at the world abroad and seeing the state of things. But there are some statements about this album where it exists in, in c- comparison to Sting's previous few albums, which were very st- stripped down. And so that begs, well, the, the, about one of the only things you can say. This, this album is definitely a lot rockier, you know, than his previous albums. Is what that does that say? <laughs> you know, yeah. Is that a direct quote? Yes, actually, I think it might be. Yeah, it's actually it was a direct quote from Sting, and then the article supports it. It's rockier than anything I've done in a while. He conceded to Rolling Stone. This record is sort of an omnibus of everything I do, but the flagship seems to be this energetic thing. I'm very happy to put up the mast and see how it goes. This is lifestyle reporting, essentially, yeah. and that was almost all of the literature that I could find about the <laughs> damn album back when we tried to do it. it was lifestyle. It's, it's you know this track explores this and that. This track explores this and that. Um, it, it's it's interesting, but it's more from a it's stuff that really the work should speak for itself. These are things you can find in the liner notes, yeah. you know? And, sure. And that's that's really not what uh, criticism is about. That would just be strict music journalism and keep it at that. So I guess the last few things that I'd like to do is, uh, going back to that YouTube series, I, um, I would like to look at some of these quotes and see directly how they compare with what we've experienced in music and why I, I found the series so relevant. I mean, you can have whatever opinions you want on Star Wars and Justice League uh, and all the other things they discuss over those four episodes, and I highly suggest that you watch it, the nerd crew off of Red Letter Media. But let's take a little peek at some of these direct quotes and see the Crash Chords podcast within them or where the Crash Chords podcast is fighting it. Starting with 
the thing I just mentioned. The Millennium Falcon appearance, and of course it's, you know, a love and adoration of, of, of seeing that ship that we all know and love. And he's just clapping mindlessly. Yes! Yes! The Millennium Falcon! The Millennium Falcon, I'm familiar with it. I saw that, <laughs> I saw that, I recognized it, and I appreciated that they put something in the film I've seen before. Any artist that we know and love, mm-hmm. that we want to bring back onto the show, as far as I'm concerned, I think we're guilty of this. The first few minutes, how can we help it but yeah. say everything that that artist has meant to us in the past? And then usually within the first track, well, there's that beat, that beat that this artist is known for. He just comes right in with it. There it is. <laughs> so or, I, I'm paraphrasing, you know, the or, ridiculousness of it, but we fall into it. More commonly, that voice. Oh, there oh, it is. that voice. It hasn't that, changed. Yeah. Rick Astley. Oh, he still sounds <laughs> we exactly. That. We did yeah. do that. We did sounds that. Just, oh, that was more impressive because it had been like a 20-year gap. Yeah, uh, but so it's there's still, more commentary it still started on, with uh, yeah. it sounds just like I think, himself. I think yeah. it became more <laughs> repetitive and noticeable and unbearable in Uno, Dos, and Trey. Yeah, well, that's also because we, that's the first time we, we did an artist, time. you know, in, in, in back-to-back where we were... We, we were I finishing guess, the damn trilogy. Yeah, I know, and we had to be done, I guess, that was already years ago, yeah. but but still, it was the first time where we would realize our own repetition, because it's yeah. hard, it was harder for us to notice our own repetition so early in the series, Sure. In, in, unless you're doing in the same artist who yeah. produces very three similar albums <laughs> in such a short span. So, yeah, that was a bit of a problem, and uh, I... I I, of course, considering that I feel that same way personally about, you know, me personally, me, me personally, which, by the way, is number two. But yeah. anyway, considering I feel that about uh, uh, the appearance of Millennium Falcon, that in itself does not necessarily do anything. Maybe there's yeah. that secret voice inside of me, which is saying, yeah, it's cool to see it again. It's cool to say it I mean, action. it was more about that but, scene you know, and them stealing the ship, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah. Yeah. But, st- but, of course, the nods, the pan to the left, right? They always, yeah. like, they're looking to the, to the right and, and the camera pans to the left and you see it appear and the music kicks up and everything. Yeah, yeah, dun, 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 like, the, the, it's your hero. Yeah. There was the same and you know consider the fact that there was of course a gap between the original movies you know it's not as if Empire Strikes Back and, and Return of the Jedi were all right back to back there was three years between each film so of yeah. course even there after the hype had had, bit, had surrounded this ship you're returning and it didn't seem like there was the same like look at it there it yeah. is you know you love that it trilogy yeah it, 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 it wasn't as example. obvious there's an extremely perfect example and that's Stan Lee I mean, he's in... He's cameo in he's every always got a single cameo. movie. I think also, that was also a line in this series, and I just want to devote this entire episode to Stan Lee, who's still alive. Yeah. He exists. It's, and it's, he's important. At this real. point, it's just because, okay, this guy created this thing that is experiencing None of right this now. stuff would exist without this guy. He gets to be in every movie. Yeah. Like, literally, that's it. But a lot of people take it as, oh, God, you have to have the obligatory Stan Lee. I know, and I can see that, for sure. It does happen, yeah, and sometimes it feels a little bit shoehorned in because you always will recognize nice. him. And it's, it's the same thing with pretty much any other art form like you'll you'll recognize certain artists as they're painting you'll recognize brushstrokes when you really get into it the nitty-gritty and you understand van gogh you'll understand yes. how he paint it's van gogh i even i think that's pretentiously <laughs> to say oh, so i can be i know it's about art i know it's van gogh but it's uh, an angle well, well, whatever. i have my one moment Van Gogh, that's <laughs> fine, and have the brushstrokes and everything yeah, like that. Yeah. You'll recognize his signature style, and you'll be like, "Oh, that's a that's a Van Gogh, right?" Or Van Gogh, 
Look, I'm barely ever pretentious. <laughs> get that I'm barely ever pretentious on the show. I love Van Gogh. I've been following his work since I could follow art. Following like, his work, he's dead. <laughs> interested, researching, loving, whatever word you want to it's insert. Right here, folks. It's a process. It's a project. Fuck you, Steve. We're working on it. Watch out next time you bring up Sufjan Stevens. I'm gonna come for you. Probably, probably. <laughs> Let's go back to that thing I mentioned. Me personally. Me personally. But guys, I, I feel, I really feel that and, you got... And you, Matt, you're, oh, the, you're the number one in this in this camp because this is just, it's the nature of the internet that all of us, I, we, we fear that we both want to take part and participate in this soapbox thing that is uh, unique to our generation. At the same time, we know that to take a soapbox is putting us at the risk of sounding pretentious. We know that that is always like right around the corner, being like, where does this guy get off saying his opinions? Yeah. You know, and so we always want to just distance ourselves, just just a notch, just one notch and say, look, for me personally, uh, that that is does not, you know, I do not speak for said thing. You know, you just, it's like, it's, it's this giant disclaimer footnote yeah. all wrapped up in that for me personally. And, it, you know, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that per se, but it, it definitely does I think there actually is something lost in someone who clearly has a point to make and yet chooses at the very last second to not say it with all of his might, with all of his gusto, you know? Then there's just a little bit of that, I mean, like, this guy, he's just, he's right in the line. He's safe. And in general, media posterity is not kind to that. I will say as my defense for doing it as often as I do is because I don't consider myself a music intellectual and it's a confidence thing more than a distancing thing because yeah. I feel like I did not I took music theory I cannot recite it like you can and so I feel like I have to say me personally because I'm coming at it at almost a somewhat I'm recognizing my plebeian but on a le lesser educated uh, precise, perspective. Precise, but at the same time, that's everyone. And yeah. it's also me having even, you know, gone to school for the thing. You know, there's always that feeling like you're not going to... Well, to look at the previous uh, earlier example in the series, I'm not Glenn Gould. I could not, I do not have his turn Thank of phrase. I, hey, well, actually, no, actually, that's a good point because yeah. in the beginning, remember, I thought he was really pretentious too. So I was that exact person that I fear. Yeah, exactly. That I fear now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's just a. I, I guess that's a tough road to navigate yeah. because you want to be validated while at the same time that's going to hurt and sting every single time someone calls you pretentious. It's going to distance you from from the people. And I would like. To there to be a space in Crash Chords for everyone, which is why, although I probably say it about 30% as much as you say it, I do say it. And I say it mostly because I just like to add that little layer of precision on top of it to say, to, to show that, yes, I'm human and I could have heard something wrong or I could have experienced something differently and I have my own opinion about it. So, yeah, I can be incorrect about this, but it's almost also the statement of, from my point of view, this is my stance. This is where I'm coming from. This is, this is sort of me actually drawing that line in the sand and saying, for me personally, this did not impact me. That's, 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 my, that's my criteria of what's going to raise or lower it. Yes, no, it did not impact me. I, 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 I almost challenge you. To, to give me the argument as to why it should, but I don't hear it that way. It is, in some ways, yes, that that backing off and saying I'm fallible, don't hate me. But it's also <laughs> that moment of me saying, 
okay, here's here's where I'm at. Yeah, that's and a, it's a little bit of a gauntlet throw. To be fair, it is probably one of the lesser crimes in this batch. I mean, you know, assuming that you are are, are human and and, uh, Being sincere. and and you're humble and all that stuff, right? It's just I guess it's just one of those annoying quirks that people like to borrow all across the board. Actually, that was probably our biggest problem. We weren't really that humble when we were discussing music in the, in the music music. No, we weren't, and that's when we should have been. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really, really should have been. And we wouldn't have said me personally to that effect we would have been like it's wrong this is this way and it should be that way so uh, like, i guess taking a step back and being fallible is actually a good thing well let's uh, move on to something else here because this crosses into both the music journalism aspect and something that is very specific to our medium this is specific to podcasts audio people not yeah. not the visual um it starts off when he goes Here's what we know, you know, as if this is going to be, you know, the source for all things news. Yeah, right. But he continues, you know, so according to my friend Dan, who's an industry insider, and the other guy, Rich Evans, butts in. Wait, wait, you mean Daniel Miller, the L.A. Times reporter? He, he reported all this weeks ago. This is this is common knowledge. This is start cut. What we know so far, because he doesn't want to forget about the fact that they're not the primary source, we're going to have a blind belief that they are the primary source, despite that this is like in a tweet somewhere that anyone can look up. Uh, a little inside detail about uh, the eighth installment of Star Wars. And so it's, what we know so far is that Ray's first bit of dialogue is, Who are you? Oh, wow. That's that NPR voice. Yeah. That's that note where everything is so much more serious and involved. The second you just you, you're you're low, you're serious, and people don't do this as much on 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 uh, video series. At least you, they they have other tools. You can make use of you know hand gestures and lots of other things. But you really gotta you gotta ramp it up for the audio medium. You gotta make use of every little every little inflection that you have in, in your voice because that's going to you can you can feel the awe, the sense of wonderment at the fact that the first bit of dialogue is, who are you? And so, Stiklasa continues, now, I think this speaks volumes. <laughs> <laughs> but All of a sudden, boom, there you go. You need, I believe it. You need that inflection on uh, auditory medium. Like, we don't have facial features no, to project we don't. to the people listening to us. We have three pictures. Same picture for me and you for pretty much the whole time. Matt, Matt is I changed. Change it he changes. We're, we're ageless. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, uh, the hardest way to explain something what is in saying? written form because people can't read your hand gestures, your vocal patterns, or anything like that. The next hardest is just through a visual or auditory medium. Like, it, it's very hard to be specific about and but I'm even same... doing it, I'm even doing it right now. It's hard to be specific yeah. about something without you... me doing my hand gesture that I'm doing right you wanna now. You want to be animated, but especially when you know it's all for effect. You know it can come across as a little bit disingenuous. You can. This is back to the law of cornucopia. You can erect whatever, any kind of scaffolding that you want to and that that it doesn't it's not just down to rhetoric it's down to inflection a lot of people are are affected more by the tone of someone's voice than they are by what they're actually saying this is very often how politicians get elected whereas i want to comment on a different angle of this and talk about a thing that we did do that we abandoned very quickly which was trying to be a news source for music news which yeah, was my idea the first half of it. and 
I think that's even funnier because I feel like a lot of podcasts go through those growing pains of trying to figure out what bits and segments. And so, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, who are, you? are, who are you? What are we? <laughs> and so that moment of, like, well, a source says, what source? You look, like, for me, it was what source? You looked that up on Rolling Stone. They already reported that. You're repeating what Rolling Stone said. And so yeah. I think that's funny to me because we encountered that, moved past it, and grew. Well, it's like you can go, well, okay, we can do five minutes of, of, of just news. So there's five minutes. Now we've, we, are, we already got well, five minutes. We only have to fill another hour and five minutes. But if we add two minutes of banter beforehand and like five or six minutes of banter after. That's almost 20 minutes. That's like 15 minutes, which is like almost 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And then and so, could, you know, instead of an hour, I mean, we can make it like 54 minutes. And think about minutes, like, uh, like, also relating to print media, those articles that say, click here to see the spoilers you missed of blah, blah, blah. And then like nine of the ten facts are things you already knew about that movie. And then one might be something you didn't know already. Well, clickbait's a whole different problem. But I that mean, kind of language about... is very clickbaity, is all I'm saying. I mean, uh, like it may not be specifically clickbait but it's definitely phrased in such a way and that's actually um kind of what steve's talking about the voice itself like our explanation itself is a little bit of that clickbait all right now is the important time to be invested in what we're explaining because this moment of music is going to strike you like no other moment of music yeah and when you pull back it's like what the hell are you talking Talking about about but here's the problem like I don't, I'm not going to speak for these two, but I really mean it when I'm saying those sort of things and phrasing it that sort of a way. I want you guys to feel that sort of thing. And it's only oh, so I, much I can project into this microphone. I'm a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I, I put on a little bit. Yeah. I put on a little bit for the fun of just doing it. You know, well, It's everyone. taken me a while to achieve that audio voice. It really has. In the beginning, it was very, eh, I don't know what yeah, I want it to be, kind of. And you or, just, or it's kind of incredulous. Or Yeah, definitely the incredulous. But, but there's this, you, you're on and you're off. I mean, it's a term used in show business a long time. And, yeah. and when you're in front of a camera, on a microphone, even if you're portraying yourself, it is a heightened version of yourself. Yeah. You know, even on reality TV, as much as I hate it, like these people, yeah, sometimes it was completely scripted and there was acting. But other times, they're just playing heightened versions of their all this their is, existing this selves. This is like what I said actually in the, that actually something that should be a really good compliment to this show, that spiel that I did at the end of episode 238, commenting on 230. The sort of half apology, half spiel about criticism itself that actually inspired this episode. And how critics, they probably will not say the things that they said in their articles or or whatever medium they're involved in, in real life to the artists that they meet. It's more likely that they would, you know, with all the pleasantries that you see in in the PR community and music journalism and the generalities of, oh, it's very interesting what, what you're doing right now. Yeah, very interesting. I just, I don't see someone kind of looking to start something, you know, if they found themselves at an event or a party. Yeah. I it's it's it that kind of I think that's probably where where critics get the most crap because well, it's the anonymity they're not of the in internet. they're not in the the anonymity of the internet and also they're just simply not in the mode to dis, to start up a discussion like yeah. that and they don't know the artist well enough to suddenly say here's what's wrong with something that you did, <laughs> yeah. you know? You can't dive into that, but if you're interested, they probably would, you know, reach that point sure. uh in in honesty but anyway let's just look at a couple more things this is something oh that we're so guilty of so guilty and while the trailer referring to the justice league trailer while it was dark and monochromatic and sickening i did think it was one of the best trailers that i've seen in my entire life and that's related to the other thing yeah the dark 
that darkness of validates me as an adult liking something yeah. for kids because dark if it's serious and dark that means it has to be profound right, right. obviously and we assume that generally even in the music we do right if we see something as light and fluffy then we don't seem to have as much to say but even if it's a darker piece of music that we don't even really like, that we're not even moved by, then suddenly we seize upon that one particular thing, and that becomes the discussion. Like, that becomes the saving grace. That even if we're about to give it kind of like a, you know, a, a, a three, we're in the threes, really, then suddenly we're spending the entire episode talking about just how dark and foreboding and immersive this entire noir experience is. You know, we just, we get caught up in that language far too easily because it sounds so much more validating. It sounds like it took more work from from the artist. I, I'm actually pissed at you because I have no valid counter-argument for something yeah. like that. <laughs> like, I, I know I do that yeah. a lot, but th- I think that for... Oh, God, I'm trying not to say for me. Uh, I think that is primarily because I really enjoy adult themes, and I really enjoy tackling subjects that aren't childish, that are very not for children. That I'm, are very, I'm on the... I, well, I think I'm on also, the fringe of of using one little defense, and that was the thing that I sometimes bring up about how, well, something a professor once said to me about how minor keys in generally are more involving because there are kind of physically more places you can go from the key. It seems, I mean, from the from the mode rather than uh, than from the major mode, and I think it's because of that that we see a more complicated story in sadness. But I don't believe I don't I don't know I feel like I've evolved in that even since last bringing that up because yeah. I feel like I've been into some pretty I don't want to say peppy music lately but I feel like especially since my kind of recent foray into math rock a lot of that stuff is pretty energetic sure. you know and I think actually it has all of the tonal complexities very very often I think it's just a matter of how you perceive the directions you can go from from major as opposed to minor I would say also another cliche of that that we definitely have fallen into is over describing clinically something that doesn't require it like the fact that they're talking <laughs> about how dark and sickening and gross that that trailer is but that's the best trailer ever is being over clinical and then leading into hyperbole i know in the early episodes of the show i have said this is the most amazing thing i've ever heard or the greatest yeah. thing i've ever heard um yeah you're actually i'm guilty of it even sometime it, recently I've, yeah. I've been falling into a lot of just like this was just chills 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 chills, chills. 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 i want to immediately chills. say still did i really get chills i don't know if i got chills i don't know maybe i mean if you actually got if chills, i actually got chills legit. i would say it but now i have to parse when i might have just been using that because i was at I was at a loss for a, a term of wonderment. Uh, on a much, much lighter note, I've given up on using LOL only when I laugh out loud because nobody does. Oh, I, I've gave, I gave that up years ago. Years I did. Ago. I tried. I tried if I laughed out loud to reply that way, but I, I just gave up. I just, I can't. It just doesn't mean what it means. Because you're not laughing out loud. If nobody it's not is. hysterical. And if, it, if you did, then it's worth saying. I agree. And then I would write out each and every letter, L-A-U-G-H. Laughed out loud. There you go. Um, I feel like lulls is the counterpoint to LOL when you're not actually laughing out loud. It's I just guess, lulls. but both nobody... It's more depressed. It's a downward <laughs> turn. They both of the, are meaningless the... nonsense. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is a minor one here. The, uh, the, the c- 
comment on how, you know, pop music is used in a lot of trailers and sequels, pioneered by Guardians of the Galaxy and all that stuff. But anyway, in Justice League, it was uh, the second song used in the trailer is Come Together, which operates on many levels, mainly one. Like, which is which is hilarious oh, because geez. it does operate on one level, and that's fine. You know, in his case, it was because come together, everyone, and see our film. <laughs> that's the level on like which it operates. All the fanboys uh, should be coming And see, I would have just said it operates on the level of the, the Justice League coming right. together, where I would agree. That right. makes sense, but yeah. No, no it's actually but, more we, appropriate we, when they start talking about the fanboys coming, coming together. together. When, when yeah. we're in our little meta spells, you know, where we're finding little components of an album that, yeah, definitely are trying to say two things at once, or be a little clever with a line. They have a double entendre there. Well, a double entendre is exactly that. It's double. It's not yeah. many. It's not many. many. Yeah. And sometimes we make things into be, to be a little more complex than they really are. Being like, all right, he was a little clever there. The English language is quirky and often can be used with yeah. snide little side remarks. Very off, very, very rarely do you get three, and I don't even think three is many, so... Yeah. But I would also argue that I think even sometimes, as um, um, Silly Gonzalez pointed out to us, we've overanalyzed to the point of seeing things that the original artist didn't even see there. We made a comment no, they on, were there. They were on there. Uh, uh, Chili Gonzalez's album, and he wrote us on Facebook saying that it was fascinating that we found this thing that absolutely didn't exist. It was way more straightforward. And I think that's an extreme that's acceptable for that kind oh, of Oh, and that conflicts with the very first bullet mark in this entire episode, because then it's a question of, we weren't right. Yeah. We weren't correct. We, we were wrong. We got something incorrect, but yet, does it? Is there still room to have that kind of discussion the art- when the artist didn't even intend it? I mean, most artists like to say, well, I never even thought thought about that when well, I was writing that, this thing, but it, it's interesting that you had that discussion. And that's I pretty never, much what Chili said, is he yeah. said that it, that was not the intention, but it was fascinating that we came to that. And yeah. that's, I think, validating. He, he, he knows that, you know, obviously the whole focus of art is to bring about a bunch of different things in many different people, because yeah. no one's wired the same way. It's just, you know, you still have to acknowledge the fact that, well, that wasn't the intent. And so you, it you was are, wrong. You are missing all of that yeah. spiel is wrong. You're, you're, you're missing the point, but lovably so. <laughs> <laughs> if we're nothing, we're well, I mean, I could obviously go on with this stuff, but I would just say, look, watch this series. I yeah. think it's relatable not just to film. I think it's relatable to just about every medium out there through which there is fodder for criticism. And I will say that, while I didn't laugh out loud, going back to what we just said, constantly, um, it was mostly because I saw myself in so many parts of this. Oh, wait, one more. That Rogue One wears its flaws on its sleeve. Uh, I, I knew that was coming as soon as I heard it. Matt finger point. Yeah, but you know what? But it, it's true. I am someone who, when I'm made uncomfortable by the media I watch, sometimes I can't stomach it. And I openly admit that there were cliches in this video series that I am guilty of that when I saw them, I just sunk in my seat. And so that just makes this more brilliant to me because it made me feel what I should have felt because it, some of it is so ridiculous. Actually, that, that feels like a moment to conclude with the rating because that was actually the yeah. other one. Me personally, I love this film. He's referring to War- Rogue One, but I don't want to look like I loved it too much, which is why I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. It, it, it's a far better film than Force Awakens, but Force Awakens, I gave that a 9 out of 10. Yeah, and we've but done that. It's, we've it's a far better that. film then Force Awakens, yet he gives it a... Like, yeah. you're, you're reversed, and at that point, yeah. you're just trying to reconcile your own 
inner beliefs with with what was objectively said, and after that, you're in a you're in a uh, train of nonsense. But 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 you you can't you got to keep moving forward. Yeah, like that's you our gotta, and, we, and we've done forward, that before. And you but address it as you go. But ultimately, it has in places made us think because like comparing an average album to another album that was also average and we thought that there was more skill in the one we were about to write average has affected things but yes on the whole going well i gave this a 3.75 so i'm gonna give this a 3.76 like we've been there and sometimes it's absolutely ridiculous i think the reason we made fun of steve so much in the beginning for using points is because i think the first couple of times steve used it it was for validation like that that just seemed so bizarre that now we've kind of all leaned into <laughs> it's a shame that people feel the need to nitpick so much much. Uh, lack of story, lack of likable characters, lack of a satisfying conclusion. These are all nitpicks. <laughs> yeah, right. And, you know, well, I, I think three that... Three hours a week, certainly. We are nitpickers, but we're a lot else, I think, too. But I think, I think also the great thing about a series like this is it allows us to laugh at ourselves, too, because yes. I know we all saw ourselves in moments of this. It wasn't just me. And I think that's what's really funny about it is that we go, oh, yeah, Sometimes we're ridiculous. Yeah. But I think it's important to recognize that. Yeah. At first I'm, la I'm laughing because of what I've seen in other places, yeah. but then you're also laughing when you see it in yourself. It's because you have to laugh. Yep. I'm, I'm, I feel like I, I have to be contentious and argue you've, with that. You've, you've been, uh, you feel attacked? I feel attacked, and I feel like I have to lash out uh, mindlessly and say things like, you're wrong, and that's incorrect. I feel like that's the John way of doing things. If if past John could speak to present John, what would he say? Was that a good um, what's-his-name impression? Uh, what's the guy who does... Um, it's pre present to past. Not present past to past. Well, yeah, whatever. Because I know what the past did, but the past doesn't know what I'm doing. So I have to tell him things. I know, but sometimes... You, semantics, you know. dude. Semantics. Not, not start with Time the semantics. Time travel. Semantics. Wibbly wobbly. Well, does anyone have anything else to say at the end of our five-year anniversary extravaganza? I mean, for a moment of sincerity to not be too mushy, which I usually am the first to go to because I'm more emotional than you guys. Cliché. Cliché. <laughs> Cliché. Um, uh, I'm super grateful for the show and you guys, as always, I think that... The fact that we're always changing and trying to grow it speaks to the medium we're working within, recognizing that it's not a show for everybody, but we want to make the show for somebody, I think is really important also. I mean, ultimately, when you're making any work like this on YouTube, on iTunes, wherever you're putting this stuff out, you're making it for somebody. You're not, but you're also making it for yourself. You want to enjoy the process. And I would lie if I said there are times when I don't enjoy the process because that's true. There are times where I don't want to listen to an album or I don't want to record because I'm tired or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, once we get into it, I'm back on board. I'm back into it because ultimately it's something I love and want to do. It and it's is, why I've grown to do other podcasts because I enjoy it. It's an invigorating project. I don't think there are, I don't think I ever would have looked at albums uh, this in depth if it wasn't for this show. And I, 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 it just back to just one little thing you said. I do do this predominantly for myself, but at the same time, I think that my what who I am over the course of the show has evolved so much that I am kind of curious to see what else is out there. Yeah. I actually would like to see um, what someone else is eager to see out of the Crash Chords podcast. Aside from just, oh, review that album, do that album, try that album. You know, yeah. we, we've, had, uh, we've had recommendations before. I'd like to see what you are interested in in terms of our delivery, our process, our whatever it may be, because I do have some ideas uh, for the upcoming season. And this podcast has, as an added benefit, not to say what you guys said didn't happen, but for me, 
I feel. No, I've become a more critical individual, and I always yeah, all thought, of us have. I always thought I was a critical thinker. I always <laughs> thought, and in certain aspects of my life, I always sure. was and will always be so. But the skills I've developed on this show, the process of thinking I've developed for this show, has really changed a uh, way I approach certain aspects of my life, and. I, I've made the joke in the past that I don't enjoy the music the same way because I am always thinking of it critically. And to some extent, yeah, I don't have that mindless indulgence that I used to have with music. But I think that's actually been a positive step because while I'm not flat out enjoying music, I'm having a more cerebral experience. I'm getting a little bit more just mindful of how I'm approaching things, just more exercise for my brain going on right there. And not just for music, but in life in general. I think things through a little bit differently. I think about things a little bit differently. And that has been probably my favorite benefit of this podcast. Just the fact that I can think more concisely and in depth about things, purely from the 10,000 hours we've trained on this. I'll be the first to admit I enjoy music more because of the show. Yeah, I would agree too. I'm finding it's stuff in band, I'm finding stuff in bands that I would never found before. And so I agree as well. I think we're all, we're also musically our tastes have changed dramatically and grown dramatically since we started this show. No, that, that uh, I just never knew I liked the things <sighs> I like now. Semantics. I just, well, I was never exposed to it. But but I, I do want to say that I am very thankful for our listeners, too. Whether it's 10, 12, or 100,000, the fact that people do tune in, recommend, and I want to mirror what Steve said. If you have recommendations for the show itself, we would love to hear them. I can't guarantee we'll make those changes, but we would love to hear them. We're, we believe in criticism and analysis, and all of the people who have spoken up, whether you're a fan and just want to throw an album at us or have constantly engaged in the dialogue on the website, we love hearing all of it. It, it, it. I know Steve said that he originally started doing it for himself, and I would agree in the beginning when we had two episodes, we were only doing it for ourselves. But I absolutely openly admit I do it for the listeners as well because I know people are listening and it validates me. I'm working on something that I care about. This is an art, and I consider it an art and an artistic project, and it's great to know that people listen. And it's exactly that, that I, I was, something along those lines is what I was thinking of developing. I mean, I'm, I'm a writer. I, that's, that's really where my craft is, even, yeah. really even more so even after five years than, you know, just speaking on mic. I have scripts. People will realize when I have scripts, you can tell it in the tone of my voice, and certainly when the language starts changing and I'm not, you know, stuttering to find the phrase. It's because certain things I, I really like to prepare because I believe that that's, the, that's what the, uh, the work is owed. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of preparation, a little bit of something along those lines. So I would like to incorporate a more creative component, perhaps something more along the lines of today, and also, of course, more research. Always more research whenever we can. And just to reiterate one final thing, even if what you have to say about us is bad... We want to hear it. We want to hear it. Absolutely. Only if you provide the foundation as to why you think we are bad. Because yeah. if you learned anything today, yeah, we can. You can. You can. If you want to be mean about something, but be mean and tell us why. If you want to see a mindless blathering of the episode we did on the Avid Brothers, we had someone insensitively just call us names, and then I tore him down. 
what episode was that, Steve? Episode 22. Too uh, early. Too yeah, early. Too, too early. Um, that's, you can get a gauge of, you know, the kind of criticism we don't expect because it's useless. Um, and there is useless criticism. But, um, but seriously, we would love to be educated on what you think of the show because we're open to anything. I mean, we've gone from doing an hour show to an hour and a half to three hours to two and a half hours. Like, it's constantly evolving and we're trying to grow. All of the shows that I work on are doing that as well as the, the, the site. Don't give any firm numbers. Art is art, art has no limits, so you can't say two and a half hours. Like, <sighs> like, like you're, you're stymieing my creative process, dude. I'll stymie more than that in a minute. Uh, ah, we're just chilling at this point. Yeah. <laughs> you want to start our new season or what? Yeah, let's do it, Steve. What are we doing next week? Next week, I am following through on something I've been really dying to follow through in a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. This is contemporary classical. Sweet. But it has notes of other things. Um, several notes, in fact, as music is actually composed of notes. But Get on with it. <laughs> This ah, was waiting for a pun. <laughs> Rachel Grimes, reading from Bandcamp here, a pianist, composer, and arranger based in Kentucky, most renowned for her work in Rachel's. And the Rachel's, um, I always say the, even though it is just Rachel's, in fact, are chamber uh, ensemble that was doing a lot back in the 90s and early 2000s. I don't know how often I've mentioned Rachel's per se, because usually when I mention them, I'm referring to the album from 1996 they did that I believe was largely composed by Rachel Grimes herself, uh, music for Egon Chiel, which I have have touted, and I think you'll remember that I've touted quite a few times as one of my favorite works of modern Impressionism. It feels like it's working furthering. I don't want to say it's working within because it's not Debussy. It's not Satie. It's not all of those, you know, 20th century, early 20th century, late 19th uh, favorites of mine that I go back to frequently as I go back to any modern album. But they're furthering it. They're expanding on a genre that was kind of on pause for a very long time, I think, in, in general. And they're not, they weren't an incredibly popular group, and they, they're not really around anymore because there have been some deaths uh, in, in the ensemble. So I think they're fairly much stagnated, but Rachel Grimes continues composing uh, herself, and she has plenty of help. So Rachel Grimes, this is not a, um, a, a brand new album. This is actually a 2015. I'm pulling a football power right in the first All of right. the season. But well, I, no, I have to two because... Two years is okay. Two years yeah. is okay. Two years is okay. Average. You're right. John just did it. But this this is an important uh, f- starter for me for a season. Okay. Because it, it's something that I've always said I was going to do. Oh, contemporary classical. And we only only kind of stumbled upon it accidentally. You know? Yeah. We kind of sort of did that with Yugen, but it was really under the moniker of Prague in which we found some contemporary we classical. We sort of did it with Serge Tankian, but, uh, right, but it's related to his other really, stuff. Yeah, that's not really his thing. It was his side project for him for the most part. Yeah. And also uh, Jan Tiersen. That's probably the yeah. closest we ever got, but even he's like a minimalist little corner of the entire thing. This, very, very different stuff. And just to tease you a little more with it, it actually crosses over into something else we've done, because the producer for this it is Scott Morgan, a.k.a. Lossel. So it's a cross between Lossel and an electronica producer and some contemporary classical. Maybe that Okay, yeah, you actually totally excited me on this I think one. I have. All right. So <laughs> there you are. Uh, Rachel Grimes, uh, a personal favorite of mine. It's this, something different she's doing. And that album's name is The Clearing. The Clearing by Rachel Grimes. <laughs> 
by Rachel Grimes. All right. So look forward to that. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us over five years. Um, please follow us anywhere you can find Crash Chords or Crash Chords Web on the Internet, your Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and so on. Um, we really appreciate the support. You can, of course, email us at admin at CrashChords.com with your questions, concerns, and critiques of John in particular. And if you have any hate mail, remember, please send that to steve.nagel at CrashChords.com. I'll read it. Yeah, he'll read it. I'll yeah. read it. We might even do no a dramatic, dramatic reading on on the podcast. Ooh, <laughs> I should cast my wife in as angry commenter number five and have her read some hate mail on the podcast if wait, we ever wait, got wait. it. Wait, wait, Where's number hey, four? Yeah, I'm okay with that. Because you could be number one and I'll be number two and Steve will be number four. So where's number three? <laughs> there is no number three. There is no spoon. All right. <laughs> good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. Remember, music is life and, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.